Welcome back, everyone, to the Uncensored CMO. Yes, welcome back. Who have we got on the podcast today, John? Right, I'm really pleased because today we have got Adam Morgan. And the reason why I'm really, really pleased we've got Adam is he's probably influenced my career more than anybody else. He uh, is an absolute legend. He wrote a book well, almost 20 years ago now, actually, called Eat Big Fish about how challenger brands can take on uh, the dominant player in their category and win. And uh, I just found it so inspiring. And uh, he's written some follow-up books since then, but he is a genuine legend of the industry. How has he influenced your career? Has he really had that much influence? He has. And I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why he has. Because, look, if, if you're listening and uh, you're working on the number one brand and you've got loads of budget and you've got loads of resources, then good luck to you, right? But most of us don't have huge budgets and most of us are, the, are competing, right? Most of us are the underdog. And what fascinates me is um, how the underdog can succeed and overthrow the dominant player in in the marketplace. And so when I was early in my career, I found myself gravitating to the exciting challenger brands, the the innovation, the brands that were kind of number two, number three, and trying to overthrow number one. And for some reason, I've always found it more exciting to be the challenger than the challenged. And um, what Adam's done brilliantly is understood what makes a challenger brand successful. And, you know, unless you're the dominant player, you are in a position trying to compete with a bigger, you know, someone bigger than you. And his principles are spot on for how you might do that. Why should we trust Adam? He's spent more time with more founders and done more research. And what's brilliant about Adam is he's he's gone and met so many people and he's drawn inspiration from all their stories and basically looked at what is the pattern between entrepreneurs that make them succeed? What, What are the principles? And he's distilled that down into sort of, you know, a handful of key principles that make challenges succeed. And it's, it's brilliantly inspiring. I mean, I know for me, what I found was I found it actually quite lonely being a challenger because, I mean, if I go back to my background, I was in Britvik, I was setting up a like a challenger brand unit, managing innovation. And um, I didn't, I, I found it hard to uh, get inspiration from within the business because no one else was doing what I was doing. And I met Adam and read his books and, uh, you know, kind of followed him closely and just found him a ma- massive source of inspiration. Where do you think challenger brands fall down most? Do you think they try to have a big company mentality? Like, what, why, why is it important to consider yourself as a challenger brand and get the help or the advice of someone like Adam? Well, the thing is with a challenger brand is you've got to change the game in your favour. So if you try to be a small version of the big brand, then you're going to fail. You're going to be outgunned. You're going to be outspent, you know, you know, outresourced in terms of feet on the street or whatever it is. And the thing with a challenger is you have to come up with your own identity. You have to reframe the category in, in, in your advantage and you have to overcommit. And, you know, be quicker and more agile and, uh, you know, you have to do things differently. And that's what fascinated me is because also big companies actually have got their, their own problems because big companies are slow. They're bureaucratic. They're internally focused. They're, you know, you know they, they worry more about process than actual performance. And that's where that's where I see small companies succeeding because they can go in those gaps and exploit them. Who's going to find this this episode most useful, do you think? Well, naturally, anyone who's in a startup, anyone who's kind of wanting to have a startup is going to find it obviously really interesting. But the fascinating thing is, and actually, I I, I said to Adam, I think this is the gem within his kind of in the three books he's written, is actually he's got advice for people that are in bigger organizations that want to be entrepreneurial or want to change the organization. It's a book he wrote called The Pirate Inside. 
So actually, if you're in a big company and you've got those entrepreneurial urges to, to you know, to transform the business, he's also got advice on how you do that. And then actually his third book is um, called A Beautiful Constraint, which is talking about how sometimes, you know, your constraints are actually your advantages because when you don't have money, you've got to be creative and you've got to think outside the box. And actually it's using the limitations you have to your advantage is really powerful and he, he talks about that in the podcast and that so so I, I hope and believe that actually you know pretty much anybody listening is going to get a lot out of this yeah should we listen to it let's do it welcome adam well thank you and i'm just delighted obviously um being a challenger enthusiast at being number two in your podcast list i think it's the perfect ranking for me and i'm, I'm very pleased to be here Great, thank you. And in fact, it, it takes me back to one of my probably favourite ever ad campaigns of Avis, of course, which absolute genius. So we're number two, so we try harder, which I just thought was one of the you know iconic challenger brands of our time. Well, it's interesting you should mention that, actually, because I, having not thought about a lot for a number of years, I came back to um, uh, a quote from somebody at Pixar uh, talking about why it was that we responded to characters and the protagonists and the underdogs in Pixar. And she, she said, we respond to them because they try harder. I thought it was just a really interesting observation that actually, you know, whatever it is, 60 years after Avis, uh, still there's that kind of cultural truth about yeah. why we root for the plucky underdog that still is a mass cultural insight, I think. But that's so true. It's interesting because I, I, I love my cycling and, and there's, there's an online retailer called Wiggle. And what they're basically famous for is their customer service because it, it's online only. But you know that you get absolutely brilliant customer service, anything goes wrong. And that's basically what's been behind their success because all cyclists will go, oh, yeah, you know, you definitely go and get it from Wiggle. And, and it, is the, it is the number two we try. They're, of course, they're the number one now. So, you know, they, they now need to reinvent themselves and stay ahead. Um, so, listen, let's, let's start at the beginning. I'd love to hear how you got to where you are today. So, so take us right back to the beginning of the story. How did you get into this in the first place? So I was always going to be, I thought, a diplomat. My dad was a diplomat. I was born in China. I lived in what was then Yugoslavia, the Philippines, Sierra Leone, traveled all over the world, loved it. Different country every three years, different culture every three years. Really exciting, kind of continually evolving, um, kind of innovative take on life. And of course, you learn so much more about yourself and your own world uh, from seeing other worlds. And I became kind of slightly addicted to this and then the year before I was I was kind of due to graduate and, and and enter on the kind of application process for the diplomatic service I was doing a summer job in a department store and there was a young woman working in the, the tartan department and uh-huh. I fell for her and her dad was in advertising and um, I thought this advertising business this looks quite fun and you know they had a lovely house and were great people and I thought okay maybe maybe I should try this just as a backup in case the other thing doesn't work plan a doesn't work and um, actually, I got into advertising. They offered me a job long before the Foreign Office ever did. And so I thought, I'll try it for two years. Uh, I can always go back. Stuck with it. Loved it. And found myself always working on or well, in creative environments, creative companies that prize creativity and strategy because the companies that came to them were never the market leader. They were effectively the number two or number three or number four. Um, and so I worked on you know, Virgin Atlantic in the early days when there were just two planes. I then went to the States and worked on Sony PlayStation when it was launching up against Sega and Nintendo. And nobody ever thought it could succeed against those two. And of course it did. Worked on the relaunch of Apple in Europe when Steve Jobs came back. And so I'd, I'd worked on what were effectively challenges that nobody called them challenges. And so when a friend came along to me, who was the new business director of the agency I was returning to, TB 
CPWA in Europe in 1999 to become the strategic planning director and said, we specialize in challenger brands. I thought, this is fantastically interesting. What else have you got on this, Kate? And she said, well, nothing. It's just a line in a, in a creds deck. And I said, well, look, let's make it mean something. So if I maybe take six months out to kind of research and write all about challenges, then it can be the kind of the book for the agency. And I took six months out and I wrote it and I completely misplayed the whole thing. I spent far too long getting to the interviews. I had a very long kind of fax interchange with Phil Knight or someone pretending to be Phil Knight at Nike uh, trying to get an interview with him. And he just declined and declined and declined very charmingly each time. Um, and so I just wasted too much time to get the interviews. And so I was 18 months late finishing the book. And by the time I finished the book, the agency didn't want it anymore. Oh, and no. So, that, yeah. it was, well, it was interesting because they... They said, well, we're not sure we want to be about Challenger now, Adam. We think we might want to be about leaders now. You know, we've, we've done the Challenger thing for a while. We, we think, actually, you know, we've kind of grown up a bit. And I said, well, you, first of all, you are. It was a really interesting company, TBWA. They were, there was a you know, Greek-American, Bill Tragos, uh, Claude Bonange, French um, media slash planner, Uli Wiesendang, a Swiss creative, and, and Paolo Aroldi, who was an Italian count, who was an account guy who sadly died by the time I got there. But they were this kind of really interesting challenge who break away from YNR, set up in Paris. And I said, but that's in your DNA. Well, they, they didn't want to do that anymore. So I'm a very easygoing bloke, but for six months I was driven entirely by anger and bile. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, you know, in the politest possible way, I liked all of them, but I thought, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to go and do my own thing then. So I was and had you, had you finished the book at this point? Or was I had it, finished was it the still book at this in point. It? You I had finished the book. book. And to compound my misery, um, the global uh, new business director said, well, not only do we not want to use this as the positioning, Adam, we'd like you to lead a group coming up with an alternative position. Oh, no. And oh. I just thought that really is salt in the wound. You yes. Know, frankly, no, I'm bloody not going to do that. Your so idea is not quite good enough, Adam. We want you to try yeah, again. Exactly. Come on, another one. Um, but it got even worse after that because um, in the spirit of uncensored CEO, because the, the agency went through a number of changes and, and, and my, my boss um, left and various other bosses came in. And um, one of them, uh, an Englishman, um, I, when I left the company, said, well, I'd like to take the book with me because, you know, I know theoretically it belongs to the agency, but I've done all the writing of it. I spent a lot of my life and my evenings and my weekends writing it. And he said, well, I'll let you take it with you, um, but if it's a success, we want it back again. <laughs> I thought, under what circumstances does that make any sense at all? Oh, that's classic big business thinking, that, isn't it? It was weird. Well, have you one way or the other? That wasn't Jean-Marie Drew, incidentally, who was lovely, who was absolutely yeah. brilliant about it. It was somebody else. But anyway, that's a different story. I want, it's interesting that. I wonder how often uh, those personal circumstances you know, in terms of, you know, things go wrong in a big company actually are the springboard for successful businesses. Because actually, if you were comfortable in TBWA and, and doing very well, yes. you might never have had that push yes. that those circumstances actually kind of led to. So in, in a weird sense, maybe you've got them to thank for kind of getting you over the line. I, I agree. It was, a, it was a beautiful constraint. And, I, and actually, there's an interesting guy called Matthew Wilcox in the States who's, who specializes in kind of behavioral science. He's an ex-planner from FCB. Um, and he talks a lot about the power of unfairness and a sense of unfairness mm. and how a lot of, for a lot of challenger brands, actually what they are able to successfully mine is a sense of unfairness. You've been treated badly. The big, you know. And I think I had a sense of I haven't been treated fairly in this process. And it motivated me to stop being a rather complacent uh, senior planner and become a reluctant entrepreneur. Brilliant. So let's get to the book then. So um, I, I think you told me you're quite surprised at how well and how quickly the book succeeded. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, it was a slow-cooked book. I mean, I, I, I had taken, you know, essentially it was 
everything I'd learned in the previous 17 years of my advertising career, learning from some brilliant people and some brilliant agencies. Um, and really, it was um, just a stitching together of other people's stuff and the interviews. So that, to be honest, there's not a lot of original Adam in there. It's, it's kind of the putting it together. It's the kind of composite that was the interesting thing. But it kind of took off really quickly, much to my surprise, not because I think the publisher put a lot of effort behind it, but just because it touched a nerve. Mm. Most of the other books were written about at the time about leadership, about GE and Coke. It's hard to believe now, but they were. And it just, it just touched a nerve. And so... I had this kind of glorious moment for about sort of two or three months where I watched it rise through kind of Amazon book charts um, and it kind of broke into the top 1,000. I thought, that's great. And then it got up to 400. I thought, wow, I'll, I'll start watching it a bit more regularly. And it got up to 200 and then broke the 100 barrier. And there was one fantastic morning when it was number 80 in, in all books, not than business books. And Bill Gates' new book was at number 82. And I thought, this wow. is fantastic. And I went, <laughs> I went home that evening and I was commuting to Wandsworth. And... Um, it was on sale in Victoria, um, W.H. Smith, for about four days. Well, and either somebody <laughs> bought it or they discontinued. But anyway, so that was the highlight of my life, and it's all been downhill from there, really, if I'm honest. It was great. It was great. That's brilliant. And I have, I have to say, um, it's probably one of the one of the books that's influenced my career more than any other book. I just think the whole what what you created was a whole kind of movement of challenger thinking that a lot of brands have taken inspiration from, um, and I think it's one of the most important books in marketing. So definitely. Big oh, plug! Big plug for the book. If you're listening, make sure you buy it. Um, so, just for people listening, give us um, just just summarize what are the basic kind of concepts of a challenger brand, and how do challenger brands become successful? So, what what I was trying to do in that first book, Eating the Big Fish, was essentially say. I'd come out of advertising. Um, I was pitching in what were effectively challenger agencies, though we didn't call ourselves that, for big new bits of business. And what you try to say in that situation, of course, is that actually it's all in the comms. You know, kind of whatever situation you bring us, we can do a, 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 a bit of comms that reframes the situation or reframes the competition or reframes your assets in some kind of way and, and changes the conversation in your favor. And although changing the conversation in your favor at some level, of course, is at the heart of any um, challenger strategy, it was quite clear that there were, there were a broader um, array of things other than comms alone that people mm -hmm. had done. So I wanted to look at um, you know, how people had kind of broken with the immediate past, for instance, how they'd, they'd said, okay, well, look, I know that behaving like this has got us here, but actually what, what is it that we need to stop in terms of behaviors and ways of thinking about ourselves and about a product, or indeed how we define our market? Um, so the first book talks a lot about, about that, and I introduced the idea of intelligent naivety, that actually quite a lot of the people who've really made waves in the categories around us don't come from the categories themselves. They come from very different kinds of categories, and that gives them a fresh perspective. Uh, and then a sense, I think, and it's, again, it's become a very common idea now, but that sense of having a kind of belief-centered point of view about you know, what you stood for and, and offering a point of view and a perspective on the world quite sort of insistently and quite sharply that you stuck to and, and built sort of thought leadership positions around, really. You accepted you were never going to be the market leader, usually, but you could do, uh, you could put ideas out that were very consistent with your kind of point of view that were kind of, that broke with the codes of the category and created some kind of sense of momentum and particularly kind of a social salience um, that kind of, you know, created kind of a talkability and a noise. And then, of course, some very practical things about, you know, um, making choices, you know, radical sacrifice and overcommitment. And, and of all of those things, actually, people in the work that we do sign up very quickly and easily for the first few because they seem very obvious. The hardest is yeah. is making those I have to say, and, and in fact, that, that's been my experience, trying to put some of your principles in the book to, to you know, to use, um, particularly when I was at BritVic doing this, um, the overcommitment was by far and away. We, I mean, we, we used to call it 
being obsessed with execution. And you have to go so much further than you think you have to go yeah. in order to create the change you want yeah. to see. Because I guess we kind of assume, that, oh, everyone's going to, you know, be talking about our new brands. And, and of course, they're not, you know. Um, and actually, it's probably the single mantra that we live with as a, as a team was kind of being obsessed with execution. Um, doing the bits before, obviously, to make sure that, you know, you've got your identity sorted and you know what you're challenging and so on. But it, the execution is so important. Yes, well, and the, and the other point that you mentioned there, which is you have to go further than you think you need to go. There's a sort of a, a sort of dotted line in terms of execution that, that we think is going to be enough. And actually, it's you know, that plus 20% or 30% or 40% um, and being confident enough to push across that. Yeah, and it's interesting, your, your, your idea of lighthouse identity, that's the other thing, of course, purpose is so popular now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But actually, you were pointing out the importance of lighthouse identity that, that radiates to other people what you stand for and I think it is always rooted in something that's true about your brand and what you're trying to fix in the world and I think that's where I think purpose has gotten stuck recently is that people are kind of add purpose on to their brand they, they kind of draw something that's in culture they think is a good thing to do and they try yeah. and do it authentically of course they don't because it's not rooted in the product whereas I think Lighthouse Entity is a far more authentic way to say you know so you take Tony's Chocolate Only as a great example we care about slave-free chocolate because if you go through the supply chain of where cocoa comes from, there's a lot of kids being employed below wage and all that, that sort of thing. We want to fix it. Yeah. It's authentic, and therefore they're you know they're kind of projecting identity. And, and it's that. founded by a journalist who wrote a story on it and was horrified by it. So, so there's a personal truth to yeah. it then. Yeah, so when you scratch the surface, you go, wow. And I mean, I, I, it's one of my favorite challenge brands at the moment because... They've completely reframed. I mean, I went to a trade show the other day, actually. There were 196 kind of brands that, you know, all, all displaying. And most of them were new startups. And um, I started at the Tony stand. And, of course, they talked to me about, you know, slave-free chocolate and this kind of thing. Uh, and there were loads of chocolate brands. And I went to every single other one and said, are you slave-free? And it, it was, <laughs> I, I just got this kind of slightly awkward kind of response. Well, it depends what you mean by slave, all this kind of thing. Um, but in, in one move, they've suddenly identified a truth about their category and they've just flipped the entire conversation to make every other chocolate look unethical. And I, I you know, as a lover of chocolate myself, I just think I'm now a super convert, a super convert at Tony's. Um, but I just think they're a brilliant example of where they've they've lived those values I think extremely I, well. I think that is a great example because I mean, I think sometimes you know you sit down with people and people say, well, you know, we vastly overestimate the amount of time and attention that people give to brands. They just don't think about brands that much, which is of course true. They then go into, well, you know, can you really change the conversation in their favour because people aren't really talking about brands in that way? But your point is absolutely right, which is that's a very simple frame of reference. Are you slave-free or not? This is the new criteria for the yeah. chocolate I'm making. Yeah. And of course, actually, it does. That's why they're number one in, in you know, Holland now. That's why Albert Hein has changed its whole supply chain policy around chocolate for all its brands, not just, you know, because they've changed the conversation. And it, it then becomes a category entry point, and suddenly you've, you've kind of taken your competition out. The other thing they do absolutely brilliantly, which is another point that I know you're making in the book, is, is use of house media. Yeah. So um, if anyone's not had a Tony's Chocolate Only and listening, go and get one because when you um, take the wrapper off, the, the, the chunks are all uneven. Mm -hmm. So they're making a point. Even, and of course, that costs them nothing to you know, the machine that goes down the line that you know, does it. So rather, where, whereas every other chocolate has uniform chunks, all their chunks are uneven to, to make a point about the abuse of the supply chain and, and inequality that exists. And, I, and, interesting, and one of the things I love about that is they get a lot of complaints about it. Right? They get oh, do they? Oh, oh yeah. I didn't know that. They get a lot okay. of you know, um, mums, for instance, writing in saying, look, I, I, this is really inconvenient. My children fight about it all the time <laughs> because they never get equal sizes, right? At least if you're getting the, the Cadbury's thing, yeah. you, know, you could say, well, you get two chunks. Yeah. They're all the same as my two chunks. You know what? 
it's like with kids. They've got to be exactly the same. So there's huge fights. And they always very patiently write back and say, I'm sorry, we can't do that because this is what it represents. So, of course, they then tell the story and then they tell the family brilliant. the story and then the kids become advocates of it. It's just a fantastic example. That is absolutely of, brilliant. Well, and it's also a nice example, isn't it, of about in the shift, in the world that shift towards kind of efficiency and efficiency is good. That's that's an inefficient thing. It's a, it's a little bit of kind of grit that creates conversation and a little bit of trouble that actually helps promote what the brand is all about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think what's what's brilliant is that they, they haven't had a big advertising budget. So it's not as if they're plastered on outdoor posters or they're running a TV ad. They've managed to achieve everything they've done through word of mouth, having a great product, you know, you know, taking the grit as you say, and making their you know making their product media itself, yeah. and and so on. So I think they're they're definitely one of my favourite examples today of a challenger brand. Yeah. Um, so let's let's just talk quickly about. Um, so you you were in TV, TVWA, you moved over here, and, and you set up the consultancy. Yeah. So now I, mean, I imagine a lot of people have wanted to do something like that. I know I have. You know, you think, oh, wouldn't it be great? You know, to set up my own business and and start a consultancy. Um, just tell me how what that experience was like in the first year, and what you, what, what did you learn from the experience of setting up uh, Eat Big Fish? So I was clear about two or three things. So obviously I, I had a book, so I was clear that I wanted to prove there was something in this challenger thought. And so the challenger brands are kind of fairly ubiquitous in, in marketing, but nobody was talking about them then. The book kind of popularized it. And as I say, it wasn't even my phrase. It was a friend's phrase, but it wasn't used in the end by TBWA. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take this and run with it. So I knew I wanted to talk about that. I'd written a workshop framework in the back end of the book because a friend called Matt had suggested that might make the book more usable. So I had to think about, well, what have I got for a consultancy? Well, I've got this workshop framework in the back of the book. So I'll try doing workshops around the book. And then I knew that I wanted to be international because I'd lived and worked in Los Angeles and loved the States and loved, you know, being international when I was in, in Europe. And so I had a friend, Mark, in San Francisco, friend Rob um, in Madrid and, and friend Peter over here, Peter Field, who, um, and together with Teresa, there were four of us who started it. So we had Eat Big Fish, London, San Francisco, Madrid. So we had this kind of illusion of this huge wow. international. You're multinational from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and then so I and then I had some friends who who you know were kind enough to say I'll introduce you to a client. The very first project was a friend who was a client. In fact, Matt, the guy who suggested the um, the, the the workshop idea, he said, "Come along and do one of your workshops for me on on ragu pasta sauce." So that was the very first workshop we ever did in. Um, in New York, and then you know, then you kind of on a roll. So we then did a project for Huggies that went really well through a friend at Ogilvy, um, and I relied on the kindness of strangers and, and friends actually for the first year or so. And then you start get some case history. Then I got I did a I did a lucky thing, which is the the, the, the publisher had, um, had had got us onto a Channel Four Business Live, Channel Four Channel Five. Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 4 Business Live, I think. No, sorry, it was Sky Business Live. So I did this live interview, which I don't know if you've done live interviews on TV, is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And fortunately, somebody, a marketing director, was uh, of a, of I, had, who I knew vaguely but hadn't met properly for a long time, was on a treadmill watching it in the gym and said, what he's talking about, this challenger thing, we should come and do it on my brand. Um, and so I then just got lucky and started picking up new bits of business, and off we went, really. And... Um, and it's that was 20 years ago you say you got lucky but i i because I mean, i've been accused of luck a couple of times <laughs> in my career and i always think but you have to put yourself in the way of getting all the old gary player you know the harder i try the luckier i get sort of thing you have to put yourself in, in you know in line to get lucky i think with these things so i do i i by and large i agree with that um i do agree with that although funnily enough i was sitting next to a bloke um at dinner the other day 
who worked for a company um, that was founded by a man called Mark Antony, who set up Mike's Hard Lemonade. And if you know Mike's Hard yes, Lemonade, yeah, yeah. Say. and he was saying that in the early days, Mike's Hard Lemonade was imitated very quickly by one of the other big distillers um, who introduced something like Joe's Hard Lemonade. And so uh, the founder, Mark Anthony, wanted to get a, a, a meeting um, with a high-powered lawyer in New York who would defend the case and got a meeting surprisingly easily and quickly. And it turned out that the lawyer took the meeting because he thought he was Mark Anthony the singer. Oh, really? He just made a mistake. <laughs> about it. So I think that was genuine luck, actually, yes, yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, but by and large, it does I, happen. Yeah, no, it does happen. Again. Oh, I love those stories. Yeah. Um, let, let, I'd like to move on, if I can, to what, what I consider actually to be your your best book, which I know is also the one that maybe hasn't sold as well. And and, and <laughs> which which we'll, let's, let's get let's get to this because um, so if I take you back, I was I was working at Britvic, obviously a relatively large, large organization connected to PepsiCo. And um, I wanted to bring some of the eat big fish ethos to it. I was creating a new um, team called C Brands that basically kind of took the challenger brands within the portfolio and managed them slightly separately. And um, I discovered your book. I think you'd, you'd recently written it called The Pirate Inside. And I just thought it was fascinating because for many people, and maybe many people listening to this, they're working in big organizations. They, they want to be an innovator or an entrepreneur and, and, and they buy into the challenger brand approach but they just don't know how to do it in the context of big organization. And I found your book very, very useful, uh, particularly at that point in my career. So, so tell me about how you ended up writing that book and, uh, and, and, and you know, how, that's, how that's worked. Well, so that was the difficult second album, really. So I, I'd had this big success with the first book um, and, and translated into eight languages and that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to write a second book because the question I got asked most often about challenges was, look, I understand how it works if you are the owner driver of your own company if you are the founder of Innocent or the founder of Method or that kind of stuff. But how does it work if, you know, you know, like I'm in your situation, I'm, I'm in, you know, a, a middle level, senior level manager in a matrix driven organization. I don't own it yet. Um, how do I make stuff happen here without getting fired? And so my original title for the book actually was How to Be a Pirate in the Navy Without Getting Hanged. Uh, and the publisher, which I still think is a better title, um, but the, the publisher persuaded me to change it to a smaller one. And I, I, I thought it was going to be a really uh, big and, and valuable book because I had a lot of, it was very personal. You know, it's a lot of very personal stories. So it's quite uncensored. I tried to get people to talk yeah. about what it was like. Um, about the bleak moments, you know, particularly in that difficult first year when you've put a challenger stake in the ground, everybody is standing around you with crossed arms looking to see whether it's going to work. You've got, you're aware there's a lot of back chat going on in corridors, you're not hearing about that. And it's quite a lonely place to stand, as you'll know, you know. Um, and I wanted to capture a lot of that. And I'd also, um, one of the questions I, I'd, I had been asked about the first book was give us an example of, of learning from failure. And I hadn't really learned enough from, I hadn't looked and studied failure enough in challenges. So I deliberately looked at a number of brands that have failed to be successfully or people, teams that be pirates inside. But nevertheless, I thought it was interesting. I mean, there, there are some flaws in the book. There are way too many analogies, for instance, uh, for one book to withstand. Um, but um, I think it, it does. There are, it's interesting. I do get people like yourself sometimes to say that is, that is, the favorite book because it spoke to them in yeah. some kind of way. They identified. Do you know, and that's it, exactly what my experience was. But because I, I genuinely, for the first time in my career, felt quite lonely because I'd, I'd gone to the um, I'd gone to the board of Britvic and said, "I've got this great idea. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll create a separate business unit. We'll put together the brands that you know we want to uh, challenge in the marketplace. So we we'll run our own kind of separate sales and marketing and merchandising unit." Um, and I suddenly realised that there was no one who could give me advice in the organisation. There's no one that had done this before. 
And um, I was kind of middle middle management level. And so I wasn't in it. I didn't have a peer group. Um, so I was kind of running a bit on my own. I mean, I was kind of, a, a, you know, attached to marketing, I guess, with my peer group. But they, they were doing some very different things, you know, big advertising campaigns and big bits of MPD and that sort of thing. And I, um, th- there were loads of things. I mean, I represented maybe 3% of the portfolio. So, you know, loads of people would say, yeah, you know, this is just a fad. It won't last. And you're only 3%, you know, so you don't, you don't really matter to our kind of future success. Um, and uh, you got lucky. I mean, that was something that I got told. Yeah, oh, you're just lucky. You know, you just you know, happened to hit on a, a, an idea at the right kind of moment in time. And generally, I felt I did feel quite lonely, um, a little bit scared because I'd kind of promised to break even in the first year, and I got there with about a week to go and about fifty thousand pounds to spare. But it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life, kind of thing. Um, and then I read your book, and your book was like great comfort to know that actually lots of other people have faced that but I learned through their experience in a really powerful way so it kind of I guess intellectually Big Fish was more powerful but emotionally I'd say Pirate Inside just hit at the right so it might have been circumstance timing I don't know but um, uh, so I'd love you to relaunch it at some point I, oh. I, I think there's a lot of a lot of mileage in there so uh, it's a well we should we should maybe at the end of the podcast talk briefly about our challenge of 30 idea as a kind of uh, you know bridge to bridge to to overcome that because it still persists and there's no reason why people should feel as isolated as they yeah. do with that situation but the thing is in, in in big companies that the incentive is for everyone to act in a certain way and to believe the same things and you know to to work in the same process and you know to and and you know most big organizations are quite political so there is a kind of unsaid pressure to, to to go in a certain direction and as soon as you break out of that it's very scary so some people have, i mean i remember for example um uh, I, I advertised in in britvic for people to come and join me and i got loads of people phone me up and they said the same thing we'd like to come and work for you john but not yet Career, and what career limit? I know, I know, because because <clears throat> the, the you know the, the back chat was hospital pass. You know, you'll be out of a job in six months. It was seen as a risk, and most people are actually, if you scratch on the surface, they're risk averse. And I, I'm the opposite of that. I mean, I, I you know, I'd, I'd far rather die trying than never try, sort of thing. Yeah. And that's what I found was so interesting about the, the culture at Britvic is the amount of people that were kind of quietly saying they supported me but publicly wouldn't you know <laughs> until after the first year you know we, we delivered our target we were still there you know we'd grown the brands by 30 percent you know turnover by 30 percent after the first year and then and then everyone wanted to join you know sort of thing but yeah but, that, but one of the reasons it is tiring doing what you did is because the level of internal marketing you need again is yes 20 30 40 percent more yeah. than you think it's going to it need is. to be right so you're doing this external stuff where you're going even further and then constantly internally managing the message and communication. Huge, huge. I mean, I, in, in the Britvic example, actually, I had probably three different very senior stakeholders. So I had obviously the Britvic side, I had the PepsiCo side, but I also had, because I was managing Lipton, which was a joint venture between Unilever and PepsiCo, another kind of senior stakeholder there. So I, I kind of described it to my team as air cover. Right. So my job was to buy them the freedom to be able to do what they needed to do. And some of them are quite shocked at the lengths I had to go to to keep everybody supportive and, and, and justify that, you know, because I think the perception was because they saw, I think, you know, I had maybe about 40 people in total, if you include the people on the ground going into shops and kind of selling at ground level. And people go, that's a ridiculous amount of overhead. And to, so I had to go and do the sums to say, as a percentage, if you take our total overhead, as a percentage, my overhead was exactly the same as a percentage of total company. But because it was 
housed together, mm. it was quite visible. You know, so you know, I had to do all this kind of justification and so on. So what I found tough was managing all of that while then allowing the team to go and do the great work yeah. and make it happen. So yeah. I, you know, learned a huge amount. So definitely, no, that'd be great. I think the um, the challenge of thirty idea is is, is brilliant. So All right, well let's come back to that. Let's do that. Bit, we'll, yeah. we'll do that. Um, okay, so that was Pirate Inside, um, and then let's, let's come up to let's bring us up to uh, your most recent book, uh, A Beautiful Constraint. So tell me, what was the inspiration for this book? Well, so I'd always wanted to do um, a kind of three different books about challenges, I suppose, and the idea would be that the first one was about strategy. So. Um, sort of loosely kind of you know, the first book looked at kind of what's the strategic operating system and of course the first book touches on culture as well as strategy but primarily is about strategy the second book was about culture so the third one was I thought going to be about innovation and I was due to write it in 2008 and just before I sat I, I kind of set aside the time to write it and started writing it and in fact it was called something different at that point it was called stubborn magic I was just interested in because that your point about um, kind of tenacity and resilience, I suppose, in making new things happen in organizations was something I wanted to kind of celebrate and talk more about. And then as I was about to sit down and write it, my editor rang up and said, look, you know, uh, Eating the Big Fish is now 10 years old. One or two things have happened in the marketing world. Uh, you might have noticed since then and the world generally since then you need to write it again or rewrite it otherwise we're going to discontinue it so I thought okay no, this is really important for my business so I, I chose that time to rewrite it so by the time I got to writing A Beautiful Constraint which was six years later the world was full of innovation books and I suddenly thought I don't want to just write another innovation book what's the thing about challenges in innovation and of course the striking thing about challenges in innovation is they don't really have an innovation department they don't have an R&D department very often in fact they're having to be highly innovative in everything that they do in spite of constraints and so I was struck by this um, and then I, I kind of came across two or three things in culture including I went to see a, um, Tom Ford speak and got a chance to talk to him about um, how he short, how he how he did catwalk shows, and and he had this, he said this incredible thing. I asked him. I, I said that um, I'd heard that he described his catwalk shows as, as filmic, and and what had he learned from the world of fashion that he applied to business, and what he learned from business that he applied to fashion. And um, he said, um, you know, what you have to understand, he said, is that a catwalk show is is thirteen minutes long, and, and he repeated it thirteen minutes. He didn't say roughly quarter of an hour, or you know, not a lot of time. He said thirteen minutes. Uh, and he said, so in that time, you've got to convince this very sensual audience that yours is the most exciting fashion vision that they've seen in, in Milan or New York or Beijing or Rotterdam or wherever you happen to be. Um, and, so, and then he talked about what he did. And, and, but, but he said, he made this really interesting thing. He said, so what I try to do in that 13 minutes is I try to um, get all the audience breathing in and out at the same time. He said, my ambition by the time the last model leaves the stage is to make the entire audience exhale as one. And so I was struck by this because clearly he had this ferocious constraint of seen it all audience, 13 minutes. And the natural temptation in that is to kind of reduce the level of ambition. How much can you really do, frankly? And it doesn't, he doesn't. He does the opposite. He raises the ambition to this almost ludicrous extent. Uh, and that's what gives him the kind of the fireworks and the theater of what he does. And then I became interested in, in this is really what challenges are doing, isn't it? They are they're not being victims to a constraint. Instead, it's the, it's the level of ambition they are attaching to what they want to do, juxtaposed, interjoined with that constraint that actually makes it that powerful stimulus to an entirely fresh way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And surely this is something that is 
important for challenges, but actually important for us as human beings more generally. So I've got um, twin boys, they're 24, um, and they're going out in the world, which has a whole level of constraint on it now that, that, that I didn't have when I started out. And how they, at some level, in business, in personal lives, as global citizens of um, you know, a planet in environmental crisis, how they learn how to uh, live with constraints, make constraints stimulus for better is going to define their health and happiness in all those three arenas. So it, feel like, it felt like to me and my co-author Mark um, uh, you know, a genuinely important subject to tackle. Not that they are, are not all important, but genuinely important subject to tackle. And so there was a new level of kind of personal impetus around yeah. it for me. I, I think that's amazing. It, it, it's, I've noticed actually in my career, the amount of times people have come to me when I've had, uh, when I've had teams working for me and they've said, oh, if only we had 10 million pounds. And, and you know, sometimes they, they, they've been managers of multi-million pounds, you know, campaign budgets. And I, I've just said, you've got way more resources than you, than you actually need. Yeah. And actually, if I look back at my own experience, the, 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 you know, the, the work that I'm most proud of has always been the things that I've done without any money, you know, the, I mean, on Juice Burst when I was doing, uh, when I was doing that, came up with the the world's first augmented reality soft drink brand sort of thing, and that was driven out of constraint because I had no marketing budget, and I thought, well, I'm gonna have to break a record, you know, I'm gonna have to do something newsworthy to get there. So I partnered with Blipper, that was a you know startup at the time, and. Um, work together to create an augmented reality soft drink, right. uh, which, you know, the world had never seen before, sort of thing. That, that was great because, and that gave me an edge when I went to customers and said, well, look, I'm going to bring you a world first. And that opened doors that, you know, hadn't been opened to me before and, and so on. And, and uh, I think I, I got something like 300,000 different people interacting with the brand uh, a year, a year in, a year in, compared to uh, when we started, and you know that would have been impossible if I put that. You know, well, I didn't have much money, but you know, if I tried a Facebook campaign, I'd have yeah. got nowhere. But I had, I had to genuinely do something that hadn't been done before, and but I would never have thought of that if I, because if I'd had a, if I'd had, let's say I had a ten million pound budget, I'd have sat there as most people do and go, well, what did I do last year? What am I going to do this year? Let's do something similar. So we divide it up and that goes above the line, that goes below the line and, and so on. And you get lazy yeah. and, you, and you tend to do the same thing you've always done. Yeah. Whereas I think what introduce a constraint and suddenly you have to change your thinking and it propels you, doesn't it? It just propels you in a direction that you haven't gone in before. Well, I agree. And, it, and there's an interesting tension here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you know, what we know from Ehrenberg Bass is uh, there's a certain kind of uh, power of scale and you need a certain level of resource to buy a certain level of share and, and all that. On the other hand, uh, you and I would both say resource can be a curse because it, it limits that. And I, I'm very fond of that concept in economics of the resource curse that, you know, what theoretically should be an advantage, being rich in a certain area of natural resource actually is a disadvantage. And other economies that aren't rich in those resources tend to do better than, with the exception of Norway, uh, tend to do better than you. And I wonder, I kind of, I'm working on this thing a little bit about, so what are the great kind of curses of the modern marketing world? You know, so one might be resource, one might be efficiency, you know, because we can buy it cheaper and more efficiently, we do. That's not the same as effectiveness, kind of famously. So it'd be interesting to kind of identify and codify what those are because, and the biases that they create, they're actually I, unhelpful. I, 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 weirdly, I think data is actually a curse. Oh, so I was, at, I was at Cannes this year and um, I, I sat in a, a, a whole afternoon of talks aimed at CMOs and um, every single one was, was about data and AI. And, and, and one lady gave this example of a CMO that got fired because she didn't have the data from the day before. 
Now, if ever there was a role on a board, right, where you're supposed to be looking at the long term and, and how your brand's doing, it's got to be the CMO. And if the CMO is going to get fired because they hadn't got yesterday's data, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But it just was symbolic of how we've become so you know, enslaved to the data and, and what's happening today in short term that we're missing the whole big picture yeah. and we're just not connecting the dots or doing the right thing for the long term. So... Uh, that as a topic, I think, would be a great one to come back to. Uh, well, and interestingly, so so I only, I'm doing this kind of project at the moment on uh, reviewing 20 years of Challenger Brands. It's been 20 years since the book came out and um, interviewing various people about kind of what's changed. And one of the things that has changed, if you talk to people, so I went off to interview Vanilla Jackson at Hall & Partners, and they are a big um, kind of insight-driven uh, kind of um, data and planning company, but they have got data on 400 um, brands in 40 different countries, effectively, 400 clients in 40 different countries. So I imagine, I don't know, 400,000 um, bits of data points on that. And she says one of the things she noticed has changed is that the focus on data has uh, led to a decline in creativity, uh, which is exactly your point, really. So there's a kind of macro picture that confirms your theory. It is, yeah. And we've become very, I mean, as, as, as the book describes it, very kind of left-brained and analytical and, and rational. And we've lost actually what, what drives our behavior is emotions, how we feel yeah. about brands. And I think that's what challenger brands do very well, is they create feeling about because they, they, they ask you to join the movement. You know, they create movements. They're, they're, they're trying to change you know something wrong in the world and make it right again like the tony's example and that creates an emotional connection with people that people want then to engage with the brand mm -hmm. in a way that if you're just given kind of 15 rational messages about why this shampoo works better yeah is far less effective yeah so i think there's a general trend in 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 marketing i think we've got to address the the efficiency over effectiveness uh you know debate that's been happening yeah. so that's definitely one for another podcast i think we'll come back go. to that one Hi, it's John here. Sorry to interrupt the conversation with Adam. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, I'm talking to you from the future here, from the next episode. Uh, just to let you know what you're going to be hearing if you tune back in to the Uncensored CMO. Um, I'm going to be meeting Aaron Shepard, who is co-founder of the GOAT Agency, one of Europe's fastest, in fact, the fastest growing agency in Europe. Um, if, like me, you find the whole influencer marketing thing a bit of a minefield and you want to work out, find out how it really works, then this is the episode for you. And also, if you want to find out about an entrepreneur who's really been there and done it um, successfully and what you can learn from him, I recommend listening. It's a fascinating listen. It's really one of the most interesting podcasts that I've had the pleasure of recording. So tune back in um, to next episode. And uh, meanwhile, let's get back to Adam. All right. So listen, I've got a little challenge for you. So um, imagine you are launching a new podcast. <laughs> let's pick an example right yes, for a friend so, this is for, a friend. Yeah, for a friend right yeah. so yeah I, I have a friend and he's launching a podcast and he, he's an ambitious chap and he wants to make his podcast the number one i don't know whether well, okay maybe the number one business podcast right so let's let's not go too wild i'm not chat taking on joe rogan here but l let's say i want to create the world's number one business podcast right i have no budget whatsoever tell me how i go about doing that so, all right, well, I, let, let's take, um, there's, a, there's a section of A Beautiful Constraint that looks at how ambitious marketers without a significant marketing budget can break through, John. Ah, very good. Uh, so, I knew it came to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called the Fertile Zero. So I, you know, I'm really interested in, in how zero can be fertile, how a lack of, to, to pick up on a previous conversation, a lack of resource can be fertile for us. Um, and so there are kind of, I think, four or five things 
to think about, and I haven't played them out for you, but let's have a look at them. So one of them is, um, if you don't have a lot of money, you've got to be dramatic. You've got to be dramatic. So drama is kind of one of the great unsung currencies of our times. It's not simply that we sit and watch drama in the evening, but um, we, it's kind of, it's the, in, a, in a world of continuous partial attention where we're constantly half looking at other stuff, if you do something dramatic, it commands my attention. It creates an emotional reaction to your point. It creates a memory. It's more likely I'm more likely to mention it to somebody else. So, you know, let's take your, your previous experience. You're very good at setting world records. So maybe there's some dramatic way your podcast has set a kind of world record. Um, so something like that. Um, secondly, I think, you know, um, and it's closely related to drama. It's not exactly the same. I think surprise, I think being surprising, if each podcast had a surprise of some kind a surprise perhaps about the person you're interviewing or a surprise about yourself oh you give me an idea there. or a series uh, of surprises yeah okay you've, you've about yourself the more podcasts you listen to about john the further you get into the, you yeah know, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, what you never knew yeah. when he was 19 and you know disappeared <laughs> for three months here's what happened you know i don't know um Third, of course, collaborate. So collaboration. So, so collaboration is a big thing in fashion and music and YouTubing, but not so much in conventional marketing, mysteriously. Uh, and yet, if you talk to an A&R director in the music world, they say you can't break an artist without collaboration. So you're, if you regard yourself as I'm breaking a podcast, you would collaborate. You, you would get on other people's podcasts. You'd do joint podcasts with them. Uh, you'd invite them to c come and do just a guest piece for you an equivalent rappers have guest verses that they do for other people so you do a lot of that yeah. stuff because you'd be trying to get to each other's audience bases and fan yeah. bases and those might not be predictable ones they might not be marketers you might be deliberately trying to get to a different you know you do one with an innovation with an innovation podcast or a cultural podcast or something like that you know you do that kind of thing um, so use other people's resources adjacent abundance um, I think I suppose the, f the, the fourth and I don't know how this would work for you but um, the idea of uh, making your secondary medium your primary medium. So what are the assets that you have, the little things that are kind of um, just, uh, um, just good practice in a podcast, you know, maybe your opening piece of music, you know, um, other things that you do, your intro, your outro, how do you make them your primary medium effectively, the thing that people pop for? You know, the podcast kind of interesting, but I just love the way. Well, so, so crudely, you know, um, I, was, I came late to Game of Thrones. Um, my wife said she would never watch anything with dragons in it. Did it have dragons in? And I had to confess it did have dragons in, and that was a restriction to us watching. But anyway, finally this year she said, okay, let's go for it. Clearly we've got to watch it. So we watched it under the kind of tuition of our, one of my boys, a 25-year-old. Oh. And one of the things he pointed out was, as you probably know, is obviously is the opening credit change every time yes so it's a really interesting example of something that's just dull and and you know repetitive in every other that's thing. true becomes a really interesting yeah. part of the narrative actually and you don't fast forward through them you sit and look at them and they become part of the richness and the detailing of the entire thing so anyway so um make your secondary assets your primary asset and the fifth i think obviously is is being interesting on the inside so there is so much that is talked about um, in the world of marketing. Your whole notion, as I understand it, in terms of being uncensored is kind of getting to the heart of it, stuff that isn't talked about. That should inherently be the most interesting topic in the world, isn't it? So making sure you prod and poke at your interviewees and indeed yourself to get to those naked revelations, I thought would be Well, that's okay. exactly it. I mean, certainly if I, um, if I look at the podcasts that I listen to regularly, they're, they're the ones that go behind the scenes that kind of reveal the person behind 
you know, I mean, I love Diary of the CEO, for example, with Stephen Bartlett. And, and what's fascinating about him, hugely successful at a young age. But when I listen to him, he's talking about the, you know, his regrets. or he's talking about his failures or he's talking about things he's learned. You know, he's very humble when, you know, when he talks. And I, I, I find that fascinating to kind of meet the person behind yeah. the bit. And I think that's what podcasting allows you to do. And certainly, um, you know, my desire in setting this up was that if all you read about a brand or a person is what is in the press, you, you're going to get a very airbrushed view or a very censored view of what they really think. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think the value for us as marketeers is to really get insight into the person or into the subject matter. And that means asking some tough questions. may not be popular questions, mm-hmm. but they'll get to the truth. And so that's kind of the mission I'm on, is to try and uncover the truth, particularly with CMOs, because CMOs... Um, you know, if, there are very few interviews with CMOs, you know, and they don't really say very much because they're being controlled by, you know, by their PR agency to make sure, well, don't mention this and don't mention that. Yeah, you can't and be honest at the time, can you? You can't. And I remember, um, strangely, I was, at, uh, I was at Cannes this year being interviewed by CNBC about what I thought of Cannes and, you know, the, the, the pros and cons and, you know, all this sort of thing. And afterwards, the guy interviewing me said, wow you're the first CMO I've met that's actually given an opinion. Mm-hmm. And he had spent like literally three days trying to get a CMO to say what they really thought about, you know, Cambridge Analytica or whatever the thing was at the time, you know. And uh, it was it, him saying that to me just got this whole idea started. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because I, I know I love to, you know, I'm probably a bit too honest on occasions, but, but I, you know, I, I just, that's what I love. I mm. love kind of understanding people and, and things and how it works. And, and there's so much nonsense out there that, you know, I'm on a mission to kind of, you know, destroy that and uh, get to the heart of what matters. So, uh, well, and, and there's such an appetite for it and a thirst for it in the world, isn't there? I mean, well, it's- I hope so. Yeah. I, I, if I look at my own experience, and I look at what I see succeeding at the moment. It is authenticity and everything is so polished and managed and, you know, censored. But I think we're in a moment in this world where we've got to have some honest conversations and not be afraid to speak our minds. You know, I not that I'm being political, but I mean, just you know. Well, that's true. And, I, and I, I think, think it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? You know, one of the frustrations about watching football these days is is you know you they all come off the pitch and they interview this person who's just you know yeah. pushed three past the top class team. How was it? Well, the most important thing is three points, and the lads did well. Just yeah, 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 for God's sake, you know that you, know, yeah. you, you must be it's on nonsense. cloud nine. Yes. Just tell us how you're feeling. Yes. You know. Exactly. People are dying for that kind of thing. And, and I think that's partly why podcasting exists is because it's, it's a vent for all that. Yeah. So finally, I, I know agree. what they really think. I agree. Know? Unpolished, gnarly. Exactly. The it's gnarly John Evans podcast. Well, there you go. <laughs> that was your alternative concept, I would imagine. Indeed. Yeah, we did play with a few, naked and, and uncovered and so <laughs> Naked on, and so. gnarly would be also yes, a good exactly, idea. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I was worried about following through on the naked one, though, in terms of level of overcommitment. Nobody will so, ever uh, know. That's true, actually. (laughs) Here I am, John Evans, completely naked again. There is no YouTube version of this, fortunately, and there never will be. Actually, who knew? I might be sat here naked anyway. Well, uh, (laughs) there's a thought that no one wanted to have, isn't there? There you go. (laughs) So, anyway, we'll stick with the uh, previous one. Um, Listen, let's let's wrap it up with a. uh, You gave me a thought, actually, as you're talking about a surprise, uh, in terms of a question that I could could ask everyone this, actually. So, so here it is. Tell me something or tell me a story that you've never, ever told anyone else. Um, yes. Okay. So this was early days. I had, it was the first year of the company. Um, so this is 1999. It was quite a big project. It was, turned out it was a very political project. And the person that had hired us, who I had a lot of respect for, was a very smart um, person, um, also had a kind of nemesis in the room as well. 
and had operated on the view, you know, keep your enemies closer kind of thing. And so they were, you know, the, the tiger was in the tent with us in the workshop. And the first morning of the workshop, this nemesis decided to play their cards quite early and really bounced me around as I was doing the upfront stuff and caught me out on a couple of stuff that I was trying to kind of just kind of bullshit my way through. And there was an awkward moment in it and and I kind of conceded that I perhaps had been bullshitting a little bit at that point. <laughs> Didn't know enough about that particular case as much as I, I thought I did. And, um, and, and the break came and I went into the, into the gents and I found myself dry retching in the toilet. I was, I was so, I just, I, and it's never happened to me before or since. Um, and what I learned from that experience, John, was don't ever let yourself get blindsided by political situations. So I, I'm really careful about doing due, due diligence and stakeholder interviews now. Really flush out what the tank traps and the unpleasantness might be in advance. Really know my stuff. Really encourage my lot to know my stuff. And have a kind of strict no bullshit policy. Because it's quite easy, you know, you're, you're working hard, you're working at pace. Just takes one of those uh, kind of searing experiences to really knock you sideways. Yeah. And actually, you know... I had a product that I was very confident in the rest of the time. The rest of the thing went really well. But if you're relatively new and starting out in my line of work or indeed in, my, in our company, that could really, could really mess you up. So um, that was a very formative and useful mm. uh, experience for me. That's very, very good advice. Uh, and I think particularly in large organizations where you just don't know the politics and... and well, you know, that, you know there's going to be politics. Yeah. You don't know where they are. Exactly, So yeah. you just have to try and make sure you're not blindsided. And I think that, that, that level of preparation... I, I know one thing I, I've definitely learned through my career is, is how the meeting is never actually the meeting. Oh. I mean, this is something that it took... I was way late to the party on this, actually. I, I have to say, I'd have been far further on in my career if I'd learned this early. Um, but you kind of go to the meeting, yeah, we're going to have an open, honest conversation. We're going to debate this topic and we'll come to resolution. And then you sit there and you go, ah, okay. So, so we're pretending to have a conversation because the boss has decided we're going to do it in this direction. And, and the job for me now is basically to you know, fall in line and say, yes, why didn't I think of that? You know? so, um, I, I remember watching the first season of House of Cards a few years ago. And have you seen House of Cards? I have, yes. Okay. Brilliant. It's that great moment in the first season where, where Kevin Spacey is having a meeting with the then president. And he turns around and he kind of breaks the fourth wall. And he turns around to Cameron and he says, this is the, is real the meeting. meeting. Yeah. And I, so, <laughs> ever since then, I keep thinking, am I in the meeting? I know. I'm reasonably sure now I'm in the meeting. I think this is the real podcast. This, no, 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 this is, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm recording it separately down the road. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, just, there's this phrase that used to really piss me off, which was like alignment. That what you had to do was you had to go and meet everybody who was influential in a decision, pre-align them. And then when you got to the meeting... All the positions had been played out, and basically it was this sort of like pretend meeting, yeah. you know, where the, the, the outcome had already... I mean, the Japanese apparently are, are masters at this, so it's common in Japan to fall asleep in a meeting because they all know this. Yeah. And they go, well, we recognise nothing's going on, so I'm going to have a, a couple of hours <laughs> kip and catch up, which I respect for being so honest, you know. But anyway, that's, that's certainly something I wish I'd learned a lot, much earlier in my career. I've been, I've been far, far, far ahead. Um, Adam, it's been a absolute blast um thank you for sharing <laughs> those stories and uh, and I, i've learned a huge amount um just give me a quick shout out for your social media channels your business 
Where can people find you if they want to get you? Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, so the Challenger Project is the way that we share all our information, Challenger Project, thechallengerproject.com. Uh, if you go onto that, you can get all the latest kind of research that's going on. And there's a fabulous newsletter, which you can sign up for that costs you nothing, but is full of richness and nutrition. Um, my company's called Eat Big Fish, um, and we're in, essentially based in the, in the US and the UK, though most of our business is, is kind of US or continental Europe at the moment. Um, and I'm on adam at eatbigfish.com. Brilliant. Get in touch. Thank Brilliant. you. All right. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Uncensored CMO. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Now, just to wrap up, I've got one request of you. I would love it if you would drop me a DM on Twitter at Uncensored CMO and let me know who you think I should have on the show. If you'll do that for me, I will send you a bottle of pink Moe. What could be fairer than that? Um, I would genuinely really appreciate it, so please do that. James, and finally, how can what should people do now? Well, we would really, really also appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help the podcast grow. If you've got a friend who wants to listen to the best new marketing podcast out there, please do share it with them. Share the, this episode on Twitter. Share it on LinkedIn. Let's push this podcast far and wide. Thank you.